All right, Hebrews 13. We have arrived at the last chapter of this book. And uh, Vincent was uh, saying earlier, we were, we were kind of picking up steam there, you know, speed. Chapter 10 in one evening, chapter 11 in one evening, chapter 12 in one evening, and then uh, someone pulled the handbrake and, you know, we're going to uh, slow down in chapter 13. So we're going to work our way through chapter 13 just a little bit slower. This, uh, this chapter of the book is given over um, primarily to ethical injunctions regarding Christian living. So this is the practical side of the book, if you like. Now, um, anybody who has known me for any length of time knows that I love theology. It is, uh, it is a passion of my heart. I love to read it. I love to talk about it. Just the whole idea of, of uh, ransacking the scriptures and and trying to pull out all the various statements that are made throughout the Bible and then, and then systematize them, correlate them one to another, and, and uh, really seek to know the mind of God is uh, just a, a real passion of mine. In fact, one of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. But, you know, there is, a, there is an additional piece to that verse, and it says that we may observe all the words of the law. So you can't get off the hook with just theology for theology's sake. There is a practical implication that, that comes from theology. That's the point, is that we study to know God that we might then be like Him. Right theology is supposed to produce right behavior, right? Orthodoxy produces orthopraxy. And so tonight we arrive here in chapter 13 of this great book where we have had 12 chapters of theology. We have been hammering away, as, as has the apostle who wrote this, with regard to the supremacy of Jesus Christ over every single aspect of life. And because of the truth of that, then there are some, some practical outworkings that have to be true about us. Certain changes that have to take place in our lives by virtue of the superiority of Jesus Christ and our commitment to Him. So tonight, we're going to be looking here at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. And we're going to find three volitional commitments that we must make so that we will live like a Christian. This whole section is about living like a Christian. So tonight there are three volitional commitments. That is, something of the will that we want to look at. And I've got them for you in your handouts. They're simple. Verse 1, we must will to love the brethren. Chapter or, uh, Verse 2, we must will to love strangers. And verse 3, we must will to empathize with the persecuted. So it's the love of the brethren, the love of strangers, and the empathetic, empathetic love of the persecuted that necessarily flow out of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So let's first just look at this 
first injunction. There are three imperatives, by the way, here. So there are three exhortations, three things that we must do. And they all stem out of a, of a, of a change of our will. So, number one, we must will to love, we must decide to love the brethren. Now, the theological truth underneath this is that we are all one family, right, in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's a theological truth. Galatians 3.28 expresses that truth, right, when it says in Jesus Christ there are neither male nor female or Jew nor Greek nor bond or free. We're all one in Christ. We have been made of one body or made into one body, his body, by virtue of our spirit baptism and union with Jesus Christ. And that oneness is expressed here by the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Now, there's a city on the East Coast, right, named Philadelphia. And the word, the Greek word Philadelphia means brotherly love. Brotherly love. It's the natural affection that should occur and does occur within a family between siblings, between brothers and sisters, one for another. In fact, one of the most common terms for believers in the New Testament is the word brothers. Adelphos, it, 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 uh, it's used over 190 times in the New Testament to refer to that special relationship that takes place when a person by spirit baptism, by, the, by their faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, placing them into that one body, they become brothers, by extension sisters, in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, it, it's looking ahead prophetically to the, to, the, uh, to the throne room of heaven when the, when the saints have been gathered, that is, the church has been gathered there after chapter 4, and it says, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation... That is, nation, not as you and I think of nations in terms of political groups, but in terms of people groups. That is, people from all over the globe that speak every single language, come from every sort of tribe, and come from every sort of people group, all there together before the throne of God. We are brothers placed into the body of Christ. And so because we are brothers, sisters, brethren, if you translate it that way as it is here, there is, a, um, there is a duty of love, a family kind of love. Now, this, uh, this is a common notion, as I said, in the New Testament. For example, in, uh, in 1 Peter 2.17, let's go ahead and uh, maybe we'll look up a few of these. 1 Peter 2.17. Peter says there, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. So you see that injunction there to love the brotherhood. You can go backwards to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. So Romans 12, 10, the apostle Paul says there, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So it's this idea of being devoted to one another in brotherly love. Turn to the right to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul's commending the church here at Thessalonica, this young church, for the, the exhibition of this brotherly love. But notice with that, he, he, um, 
he's going to tell them to, to keep after it, do still more. But he says here in verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It's a natural outworking, he's saying, of being part of the family of God. It's the way it ought to be. We ought to love one another. Back to 1 Peter again. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Peter says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, then fervently love one another from the heart. It's all about loving each other, loving the brethren. This is an outworking of our relationship by faith to Jesus Christ. We should be loving one another. Now, this, um, this brotherly love doesn't come naturally to us. It is not a natural thing. It is, it is a byproduct of a transformation that occurs. Again, it's worth, I think, to, to turn there to go to Romans 12 and, and see this. It's the result of a transformation that occurs within us. Romans 12, verse 2 Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, right? Do not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And of course, we looked at verse 10 over there, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. That's what it looks like to be transformed, he's saying. That is an illustration of a transformed life is a brotherly love, a commitment to one another. And what is a demonstration of a of an untransformed life is a lack of brotherly love. It doesn't come naturally. People don't naturally love those outside of their family. In fact, what people are is naturally suspicious of those outside their family, distrusting of those outside their family. Protective of their family and wanting to keep others out and away so that they might not uh, hurt their family. But, but the, the apostle says that that's the way the world is. And so you cannot be conformed into that mold, squeezed into that mold. You must be transformed into seeing brothers and sisters in Christ and loving them as, if, as they are your true brother and sister in Christ. Go back to uh, Hebrews the writer here is just urging these people to recognize their Christian brotherhood. The verb uh, that he used here, translated continued, it, the verb is meno. It means to remain or to continue or to endure. And what he's saying to them is, is that their, their brotherly affections are in danger of waning or even being severed. And so he is admonishing them, he's exhorting them to kindle this anew, this love for the brethren. Now, what was it that would cause their love to wane? What is it that we know about this church that we have learned week in and week out? I think I'm on, uh, this is number 32, a sermon on, uh, on Hebrews. And I think almost every week I've, I've said that the situation here for the church is one of persecution, remember? This is a persecuted church. And under this intense persecution, 
the brotherly love is beginning to crack. It's beginning to, to, uh, to fail. And so he is exhorting them to fire it up. He's urging on them here, by the way, uh, more than just a mere sentiment. He's not just saying, well, feel good about your brothers and sisters. You know, kind of some oozy-goozy, mushy sort of love. He's talking about a costly love. Costly love. And in fact, uh, John writes it this way over in 1 John 3, being in verse 16. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth, right? The love of the brethren that he's exhorting here in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Hebrews to this persecuted church is an active love, a costly love, a real practical love with an outworking through the hands. Many of us have heard that persecution, right, through the ages is good for the church. You heard that? You hear this, uh, this notion that, uh, that persecution, the church prospers underneath it. And it's true in some sense. Tertullian, the, uh, one of the church fathers from Africa, from Carthage, he said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? You, you um, produce martyrs and, and the church just grows underneath that kind of persecution. And there's truth to that, for sure. We can look even uh, in our own lifetimes to the church in China. When uh, 60 years ago or thereabouts, the bamboo curtain dropped down, right? And, and communist uh, uh, China, the government began to persecute the church and, and uh, kicked out all the Western missionaries. Some were feared that the church would, would disappear. But recently, as people have been able to get back in and they've traveled through the nation, they found that the church has not disappeared. In fact, the church has grown tremendously under the persecution. So it's true, persecution can bring and does bring growth of the church. But there's a downside to persecution as well. And it's the downside that the author is really addressing here for us in verse 1. Persecution can drive believers apart. It can separate believers. Let me give you some examples of this. Historically, uh, the church suffered, and in the early centuries, ten specific waves of persecution. Ten different persecutions came upon the church in its first 300 years. And the first empire-wide, most of the, the first seven of them were regional persecutions, meaning the believers would be persecuted in one part of the empire, but in another part of the empire they'd be relatively safe. Well, the eighth persecution was an empire-wide persecution. It was the first one that was a systematic persecution of the church across the whole Roman Empire, from one end of it to the other. It occurred under the Roman Emperor Decius in AD 249 to 251 is the, is the years of that persecution. And it was an intense persecution. It was the people were, uh, were hauled in and, and they had to offer a pinch of incense and they had to confess Caesar is Lord. And if they would do that, then they were, they were considered loyal subjects of the empire and, and they could go on and practice their other religious beliefs, whatever they were. Rome was tolerant in, 
in uh, some sense, in terms of religious freedom. You could practice whatever religion you wanted, provided that you would at least once a year burn the pinch of incense and confess Caesar is Lord. And that's what most people did, except for these pesky group of followers, right, of the way, who said, no, there's only one Lord and his name is not Caesar. And so they said, Jesus is Lord, and, and they refused initially to burn the incense. And so it brought down the full weight of the Roman Empire upon them, and the persecution grew severe. People were being tortured if, rather, in order to force them to confess. And many wilted under this heavy persecution. And after it passed, after the three years when it passed, it brought a tremendous problem into the church. It, there was a creation of two groups of people. They called them the lapsed and the confessors. The lapsed were those that under the pressure of torture or even death, and maybe not just their own personal torture, but the torture of their own families, their wives and their children in front of them. They wilted and they confessed Jesus or Caesar as Lord. Others went, took it all the way and, and uh, refused to offer the incense. And so when it passed, there was these, this, this problem. Those that had remained strong and had not wilted looked with, with uh, despised those that had. And so there was a tremendous uh, tearing that went on in the church, brought about by the persecution. The same thing is true historically, even in our own lifetime. The Iron Curtain, there when uh, falling over Eastern Europe and, and the Soviet Union, brought tremendous persecution to the church. And there were some that, that wilted under the persecution, and there were others that remained strong. And the church went underground. But what happened over that period of persecution is not only did the underground church remain true to the word, but the underground church began to become rigid, legalistic, judgmental of others who didn't follow their way, who didn't go underground with them, those that, that showed any kind of cooperation with the Soviet government at all. They began to have a censorious spirit towards those people. And when again the wall lifted, or the wall came down rather, and, we, and people were able to go in, what they found there in the church was a tremendous uh, level, as I say, of legalism and a judgmental spirit that had entered in. The brotherly love had been diminished by the persecution. Even in China today, you can read accounts of some of that too, where there's a, a sense in which some uh, followers of Christ think other followers of Christ are less because they don't do it their way. The persecution has brought about that kind of, of uh, division within the body of Christ. And so the love of the brethren has waned. Now, we don't live under persecution, do we? This, none of you have ever been persecuted for Jesus Christ, and nor have I. So we don't live under persecution at all. But we still have our own problems with brotherly love, don't we? Jesus said in John 13, 35, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. That is the, the mark of Christian discipleship. The mark of having being possessed by Christ is our love for one another. But when you are constantly rubbing shoulders with imperfect people, I mean, everybody else, you know, not you, but 
you know, when you're rubbing shoulders with imperfect people, there is a sense in which you can grow irritated or even indifferent to them. Let me, uh, maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. It'd be like um, going out and gardening on a Saturday without gloves. Okay, you, you go out there to do your yard work on a Saturday. You're not wearing any gloves, so you're, you know, you're raking the lawn. And as you're continually raking away on the lawn, you're, you're developing a friction blister, right, on your hand. And it begins to grow, and, it, and it's uncomfortable, and it hurts, and it, it makes you want to stop raking. Leave the church. Others have, uh, have developed through raking... They've, they've gone through the blister stage and they've developed calluses on the palms of their hands. So they can rake all day long without any gloves on. doesn't bother them at all. But they've become sort of indifferent to their other brothers and sisters who are still have, you know, banker hands. That's what we used to call them. And, um, you know, meaning you paid somebody else to do the raking. And, and so they don't have any patience with somebody who have soft hands. They've grown indifferent because of the calluses. So what's the answer? I mean, the the raking, the rubbing, the friction doesn't go away. It's It's a product of living in a fallen world. So what's the answer to all of this? Look again at verse 1. The answer is that it's volitional. It's a it's an act of the will. Love is not a feeling. It is an act of the will. You must decide to love the brethren. You must decide to love the brethren. Inwardly, you must come to the understanding of the, of the tremendous theological implications that flow out of the fact that we are one in Jesus Christ. That is a tremendous truth that, that needs to be pondered. It needs to be chewed on. It's not something to be taken lightly. That all of us in this room, and you know, you can look around and there's all kinds of backgrounds, even in this group of people tonight. We have become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that is significant. It is a theological reality. And we need to, we need to contemplate the implications of that. So that our thinking is transformed. But beyond just that is, is we need to outwardly be transformed as well. We need to outwardly be transformed. We need to only do and say that which enhances our Philadelphia, our brotherly love. We should only do and say those things that enhance the theological reality that we are one family in Christ. So let me, uh, let me suggest to you some ways to do that. One is to speak to and about other members of Foothill Bible Church, only that which will build them up, not tear them down. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. We need to commit ourselves when we speak to somebody or about somebody to only say that which will build them up. And if we can't say something that will build them up, then guess what? We don't say anything at all. 
My uh, mother used to say when I was a boy growing up, if you can't say anything nice about your sister, then what? Don't say anything at all. Okay, it's really that simple, that practical. Control your tongue. Secondly, is we need to practice a, a sanctifying obedience. I've lifted this statement right up out of our core values. Practice sanctifying obedience that is encouraging fidelity to biblical commands and humility and personal preferences. We need to practice amongst ourselves and encourage one another to, 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 to be true, to be, to, um, to be obedient to that which is a biblical command, but that which is a personal preference, we need to give space to one another. That's a practical way to work out brotherly love. Third, go out and do something nice for that person or persons within the congregation that you have the greatest difficulty loving. Those persons or person in the congregation, you know, that just kind of rub you a little wrong. Go out of your way to do something nice for them. Write them a note of encouragement. Invite them to go to lunch with you after church. Give them a gift. Do something nice towards them, for them. Fourth, pray regularly for that person or persons with whom you don't see eye to eye. Pray for them. And pray in that context, asking God to change your heart to give you a greater level of love for them. Not God, please change them so they don't irritate me so much. Right? Jesus said to take the log out of your own eye first before you do what? Try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So pray for those people and, and pray that God would change your heart towards them. That he would give you a greater level of love towards them. So the first volitional change that we must make is Philadelphia, brotherly love. We must love the brethren. Secondly, we must philozenia. That is, we must love strangers. We must love strangers. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, in antiquity... Travelers did not have the availability of the hotel system that you and I have. It's just a fact. You know, there are so many hotel chains across this country that you can travel and there's virtually anywhere you go, you can find a place to stay, right? It was not true in antiquity. There were inns, but the inns were, were noted or notorious for crime, for filth, and for moral debauchery. So it just, they weren't great places to stay. Beyond that, as a Christian traveling throughout the Roman Empire, at this time, and we believe this book was written shortly before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, by this time persecution had begun to heat up. So to affirm the name of Jesus Christ in a, in, and to try to stay in an inn was sort of a doubly dangerous prospect. 
Therefore, the Christian community reaching back and drawing a, a, a great Old Testament tradition forward with them, really a deep and sacred tradition, and valued what's called hospitality. Hospitality. The word literally means the love of strangers. Hospitality, the love of strangers. And again, there are, there are many references to this. There was, a, there was a Christian duty to practice hospitality. It was not an option. It was a duty. Let me illustrate for you how seriously the church took this duty by looking at a few passages with you. Go with me to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 10. The ministry of hospitality was not an option. It was a requirement or a required characteristic of a widow, of the life of a widow, before they could be added to the permanent welfare role of the church. 1 Timothy 5, verse 10. He's speaking here in context about, you can look back to verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. And he is now going to go on to define what what makes up a widow indeed, a, a certain class of widows those that are eligible for the church's benevolence ministries on an ongoing basis. And one of those things that he says is that this widow, verse 10, has to have a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to strangers. Do you see that? If this was not characteristic of her life, that is a ministry of loving strangers, of hospitality, then her life was of such Uh, diminished character that she would not qualify for the church's ongoing benevolence ministries. It was a serious measure of a person's godliness. Beyond that, it it was an act of Christian faithfulness. And it was practiced to help traveling Christian missionaries and preachers of that time. And you can see that over in 3 John. So go ahead and turn there. 3 John chapter 1, that was a joke. (laughs) Wasn't a funny joke, Peter, but it was a joke. 3 John, beginning in verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they bear witness to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing in return. These are the itinerant missionaries, preachers that were traveling throughout the empire, preaching the gospel and teaching in the churches. What he says is that it's an act of Christian faithfulness is to to come alongside them and support them to practice hospitality. Give them a place to stay. Give them a meal to eat. I didn't bring the quote with me, but the the Didache, which is a very early Christian document, possibly even as as, uh, early as late 1st century, certainly early 2nd century, has a, has a section in it that tells you how to figure out whether someone is a legitimate traveling itinerant preacher. And it's based upon how long they stay in your home. 
If they stay one or two days, they're, they're okay. If they stay three or longer, then you know they're a false teacher, it says. You know, what do they say? What does company and fish have in common? Right after three days, they begin to stink. Yeah. So literally, they are in that very early document, giving, uh, you know, giving help to the early church. They say, you know, take them in. Practice hospitality to them, but don't let them mooch off you for too long. Okay? They're showing their stripes. It was a Christian duty. Hospitality was and is a Christian duty. And it must be practiced by all within the church without complaint. Without complaint. And by the way, this is probably the place where I need to insert this. It is not a spiritual gift. Okay? Sorry. Okay? You don't get off the hook that way. 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Okay? This epistle is not written to an individual. This is written to a series of churches. It is a broad epistle. Okay? Called one of the Catholic epistles, meaning a universal epistle, not, not written to a single church. I'd be careful, small c Catholic <laughs> epistle. Okay? And the point of it is, is that this Christian duty applies to all Christians. It is not a spiritual gift. You can mark down there and go look it up on your own, Romans 12, verse 13. Okay? Where it appears again there in a general sense, an admonition, exhortation to the church at large. There is no such thing as a gift of hospitality, a spiritual gift of hospitality, although I've heard it so many times. Well, you just have the gift of hospitality wrong. Okay? You're not off the hook that easy. It is a Christian duty. And beyond that, beloved, it is mandatory before a man can be considered to be an elder in the church of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 8, requires they practice hospitality, a lover of strangers. If a man has not reached that level of, of Christian maturity, he is disqualified to be a, a shepherd of the local church of God. Okay, It's mandatory. Now, this is where it really begins to hurt. Okay, that was just sort of warming it up. Biblical hospitality, listen to me now, biblical hospitality is not the same thing as inviting your friends, your family, or your neighbors in for dinner. That is not biblical hospitality. That is entertainment. That is entertainment. Now, entertainment done correctly can be beneficial. It's not a, it's not a sin to entertain, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. It could be if the purpose, the motive behind your entertaining your family, your friends, your neighbors is to show off your, you know, your, your fancy china and your nice house and your, you know, the culinary skills that you've acquired or, or whatever else. Then it would be sinful. It would be pride. But it doesn't meet the qualification of biblical hospitality to just have people over to your house for dinner. Particularly people that you know. Ooh. That hurts, right? Hospitality is the love of whom? Strangers. Strangers. 
It's not the love of friends. It's not the love of family. It is the love of strangers. And that's what makes it so difficult. I told you the love of the brethren, what makes it, what, you know, what makes the love of the brethren difficult? It's the, it's the untransformed mind. What makes the practice of hospitality, the loving of strangers difficult? It is the untransformed mind. The untransformed mind, the unsaved natural mind is, is more characterized, but we, we have known as xenophobia, right? Which is what? The fear of strangers. That is what is more characteristic of one who does not know Christ. But a person who knows Christ, their mind should be transformed, is to be transformed to become a lover of strangers. Now look back here at this verse and and notice the interesting motivation that he gives to do this. I mean, there's a lot of ways that he could have reinforced this exhortation. But he does it in a fascinating way. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Fascinating, right? It's an interesting motivation of the exhortation. Who are the some? Is it you or me? Is that what he's saying? You know, if, if, if I practice hospitality, there may be an angel that would show up on my doorstep. Even though I've heard these stories, that, beloved, I don't, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that at all. He's writing to a, a church made up of Jewish believers, right? Their minds are, are steeped and saturated in the Old Testament. Let your mind now flow back to, a, to the Old Testament and think about who entertained angels unawares. Abraham. Abraham. Chapter 18 of Abraham. He practiced hospitality and entertained angels unaware. Lot practiced hospitality and entertained angels unaware. Gideon practiced hospitality and entertained angels unaware. The parents of Samson practiced hospitality and entertained angels unaware. That's what the reference is to. Okay, I, you know, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble who's convinced that they've had an angel for dinner. Okay, but it's probably not likely. The point that he's trying to say is that when you do this, you fall into line with the great men of faith that have gone before you. That's the motivation for it. In the process of practicing their, the hospitality, they were blessed to have angels, angelos, which literally means messengers of God among them. There's no promise in this verse. For us today, that if you practice biblical hospitality, you'll have an angel over for dinner. Okay? <clears throat> but there's an interesting motivation. The interesting motivation is that if you practice biblical hospitality, that the one whom you have in your home may very well be a messenger of God and bring tremendous spiritual enrichment and encouragement to your home and to you. And those that have practiced biblical hospitality can give testimony and example of those very things. People that they did not know, but because of their union in Jesus Christ and their love of the brethren, they had them in their home and they ministered to this stranger. And in the process of doing that in conversation and, and shared experience and so forth, they were in, tremendously blessed and enriched. That's the motivation that we can take in the 21st century. There is a tremendous blessing available 
to us if we will practice hospitality. All right, let me try to give a few practical suggestions on this, okay? I'll start with the easy ones. Be alert on Sunday morning or Sunday evening for new faces in the congregation. Be on the lookout, not for your friends, not for those that you most like to spend time with and, you know, chit-chat. Look for someone you do not know, someone who is a stranger to you. Many uh, congregations practice what they call the three-minute rule. I've been thinking about this as maybe, a, maybe something we should implement. The three-minute rule essentially says that at the end of a service, for the first three minutes before you talk to someone you already know, you look for someone you don't. And you just go to that person and you introduce yourself and you just begin a dialogue. So the three-minute rule. Second application is to think of your home as on loan from God and a stewardship through which you can minister to others. Now, we know that your homes are all on loan from the bank, okay? I want you to think about them as being on loan from God. Okay, and thus a stewardship through which you can practice a ministry of hospitality. Third, and this is not possible for everyone, I know, but for many of us, we live in large homes. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we live in mansions. Consider the possibility of setting aside a prophet's room, a prophet's room with suitable accommodations where you could put up someone who is passing through town, a missionary, home on furlough and passing through, a, a traveling evangelist or preacher, Christian worker of some kind. Wouldn't it be a neat thing if every Christian passing through the city of Upland had a place to stay other than, you know, Motel 6 or, or whatever it is, that they could come into the homes of the believers that live in this community? So consider setting aside a prophet's room, particularly as your children are, you know, are grown and beginning to move out of the house. Set aside that room. Second Kings chapter four, verses eight through ten. Yeah, your room. That's right. Second Kings four, eight through ten is the illustration of. Uh, a Shunammite woman and her husband who set aside a room for the prophet Elisha, remember? So consider a prophet's room. Fourth, beginning uh, next fall, we are going to um, be rolling out a, a ministry called oikos groups. And oikos, uh, the Greek word oikos means house. So home groups. And they have a they're going to have a tremendous impact, I believe, on this congregation and we're going to talk a lot more about them. But I guess I want to give you an early encouragement to participate in those Oikos groups because it is there where you will get to know people, people that you don't know well in a much deeper and more profound way. So those are a few suggested applications for you. So we must will, we must decide to love the brethren. We must will or decide to love strangers and last... We must will to empathize with the persecuted. 
Verse 3 again, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. We're to express love not only to those that we can see, but also to those that we cannot see. Those that are locked away, right? There are two Two groups of people spoken of here in verse 3, the prisoners and the persecuted. And both of these groups are suffering for their faith. They are imprisoned, they are ill-treated because of their faith. The Christian church historically, the last 2,000 years, has had a ministry to those who are, who, who are criminally incarcerated, inappropriately so. It is a ministry of of uh, compassion, consistent with the clear teaching of the New Testament, to reach out to those who are criminally incarcerated. But the prisoners that we are expressly called upon to minister to are not the criminally incarcerated, but those who have been incarcerated for their faith. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16, speaking about ending up in jail, he says... By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. What he's saying is if you're going to go to jail, go to jail because of your faith, not for some other reason. Jesus, in Luke 21, verse 12 prophesying of the treatment that will fall upon his early followers. It says, but before these things, that is the destruction of Jerusalem, they will lay their hands on you, that is the apostles, and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. Jesus says, when he returns To establish his millennial kingdom, Matthew 25, he calls the nations before him, the Gentiles. And he separates them, right? As one separates a sheep from the goats. And one of the criteria by which he separates them is how they minister to those who were imprisoned, right? He says, for I was hungry, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Those are the weak and the suffering in that context Jews under the persecution of the tribulation. And Jesus says, those Gentile nations that responded to them in compassion, those are the sheep, enter into the kingdom prepared for you. Those who ignored those needs depart from me, right? Into eternal destruction. Those verses talking about ministering, remembering prisoners imprisoned for their faith. Those people are suffering for Christ because they are living in the midst of a a place, a day, and an age that's hostile to Christianity. The church itself, look look back in chapter 10. This is, again, this is by way of reminder for them. They have slipped in this area. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, 
You endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. When they first committed themselves to Jesus Christ and the persecution came on them, they they were ministering to one another. But what's happened is over time, their enthusiasm has has waned. They have been ground down by persecution. And so the apostle here is rekindling this Christian virtue within them. That they are to remember these who are imprisoned, these who are being ill-treated. And notice what he, what he says here. He says, remember them, since you yourselves also are in the body. It's essentially an, an exhortation to put yourself in the other guy's place. The body being talked about here is not the body of Christ. That is, not, that is really not grammatically possible. Uh, actually, even a better translation, the, the noun is anarthrous here, meaning there's no definite article. A better translation would be, for you yourselves also are in a body. That's his point. He's not talking here about the universal body of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that you have a physical body. He's making this intensely practical. And he's saying, because you have a, a, a physical body, I want, you to, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be there. Think about what it is like to suffer for your faith. Remember those people who are suffering. Don't put them out of your mind. Remember that you, too, have a human body with all of its attendant weaknesses. You should imagine how they feel. And that imagination should should promote empathy on your part towards them. And that empathy will manifest itself in practical action. The empathy will produce empathy. Activity. Let me illustrate this for you. Uh, go over to Second Timothy, chapter one, and there, in verse sixteen, we meet a man by the name of Onesiphorus. I always thought that'd be a cool name for my son, Onesiphorus. Hey, Oni, how's it going? <laughs> The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. And the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. This man, Onesiphorus, because of his empathy for the Apostle Paul and the suffering that he was undergoing being imprisoned for his faith, made the diligent effort to search him out. You know, when, uh, when people are imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a really healthy idea to be associated with them. You know, for, for it, to show up and, and to minister to them is to identify with them. Now, in the Roman system, by the way, you know, the, it was up to the family and friends of the incarcerated to provide for their physical needs. Right? Remember what Paul says, bring the cloak. Come before winter, okay? You don't get you don't get uh, you know prison jumpsuits in the Roman Empire. You don't get three squares a day, and you don't get an exercise yard, and you don't get cable TV. So it's 
If, if your family and your friends did not provide for you, you would rot in the hole. They'd open the door one day and you'd be dead and they'd drag you out and use the place for someone else. So you were literally there ministering to this incarcerated person. You were identifying with them publicly because of their faith and so you were bringing great, great risk upon yourself. Kent Hughes has a great comment. Again, we're not imprisoned here in this country. There are others in the world, but Kent Hughes has a great comment in his commentary here in Hebrews. Let me just read this quote for you. He says, This call is especially relevant to us moderns who have had our empathizing faculties increasingly dulled by the electronic media that assaults us daily with images of suffering narrated by the professional or narrated with the professional detached nonchalant of the network anchors. What is he saying? He's saying that day in and day out we are bombarded with images of suffering, right? And the reporters standing there and they're dragging the bodies out and they're, you know, they're just babbling away. And the process of doing that is we're becoming desensitized to suffering. It's hard to empathize with people who suffer. And like the other exhortations, we can't evade this one by just saying, well, I'm not empathetic by nature. You know that some people are empathetic by nature and I'm just not. Well, change your nature to become empathetic. How? Well, let me suggest some things for you. Be informed. There's a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. I listed the website for you on the back of your handout. It's not a perfect organization. It's got its problems, like every other organization, I suppose. But I think they're doing a good service of highlighting the persecuted church. If there's something better out there and I'm, I'm unaware of it, I'd love to hear about it. But I would recommend that magazine for you to just read and become aware of, what, of what's going on in the world in terms of suffering for Christ. Secondly, pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the persecuted church. Make it part of your regular prayer habit. Not every day necessarily, but some kind of regular part of your prayer time. Third, if you've not done this yet, then dig out the old classic called Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it. Don't read it at night before you have to go to sleep because it will be so disturbing to you, you will have trouble sleeping if you've got any kind of compassion left in your heart at all. If you've not read that book, you need to read it. You need to see what people have suffered for Christ. Fourth, give financially to help support the persecuted church. Fifth, visit countries where the church suffers persecution and talk to people firsthand. These are sort of Increasing levels of commitment, if you will. You can begin with just becoming informed and pray. Everybody can do that. Others may have possibility to do some of these other things. You know, beloved, left uh, unattended, our hearts will just grow cold and cold and cold. We have got to, to um, constantly be renewing ourselves. Renewing the mind by the washing of water with the Word. Right? Isn't that what the Apostle says? So that's what tonight's all about. Yes, my prayer is that in the years to come before us here, that we will become increasingly compassionate. We will become increasingly characterized by a, 
by a love for the brethren, a love for the brethren that is so different that this, this, you know, the city of Upland notices it. Man, you people are different. You really love each other. You don't just talk about loving each other. You really love each other. There is a, that there is a love for strangers that prevails within our fellowship that actually works, reaches out and ministers. And that there's, a, there's an empathetic and, and active care for those who are persecuted for Christ. A few weeks ago, I said that, you know, big changes are coming, right? Remember that? I probably spooked a few people. Big changes are coming by the grace of God. The big changes, beloved, don't have to do with programs. Okay? If I say big changes and you think programs, you're on the wrong track. Okay? It's not, we're going to add this program, we're going to deduct this program, we're going to change this one, we're going to add a staff person, we're going to spend some money here. You know, we probably and hope to do many of those kinds of things. Those are the small changes. The big changes are the changes that have to occur inside. Those are the big changes. Those are the ones that require sacrifice, hard work, stretching. Because we need to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to really have to change for all of us. For all of us. We are in the process of sanctification. Amen? So it's my prayer that uh, by the grace of God, and I have no idea what's in store. I have no idea what God's got in store for us. For me individually, for you individually, for us as a body. But I know one thing, that if we get serious about living for Christ in this fallen world, we are going to encounter opposition. We need to be ready for it. Let's pray. So, Father, we, uh, we ask you to work even now to change our hearts because that's where it all begins. Our hands won't change until our hearts change first. So, Father, we ask you to break us. We ask you to bring into our lives whatever measure of suffering or affliction or stress and strain is necessary to, to transform us in the image of Jesus Christ. Our model is clear, our Father, before us. Christ came and suffered. And he said that if they did this to him, they will most certainly do it to those who follow him. And Father, we, we are following Christ. And so we are walking into the lion's den. But we don't walk in alone, our, our Father, because we know that you're there. We know that your grace is sufficient for our needs. We know that you're committed to our holiness for your glory and our good. Our faith is weak. We ask you to strengthen it for your name's sake. Amen.